and explain a little bit about um, explain a little bit about why we have the service the way we do normally, and then uh, take a moment and then we're going to have our study after a bit of time of dedicated prayer. Because uh, so, I want you to know that things aren't like haphazard, and we don't just do stuff because Christians do stuff. You're probably aware of the fact that that could be really dangerous. There's so much that could take place in a culture, and um, and I'm going to try to challenge our culture a little bit. And I'm not talking about the world's culture. I'm talking about the, the Christian culture, so that we can be um, just we can be that much more faithful to what the Lord calls us to. So. Uh, let me do that first, and then we're going to take a time of praying. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and when we uh, so so listen, well here, Lord, just even as we begin this, uh, just minister. Thank you for the sweetness and the clarity you've been giving lately, and the beautiful intimacy with you. And I just know you're going to do great stuff tonight. Really teach us, Lord. I pray in Jesus in your name. Amen. Uh, when you're probably, you know, some of you have been around long enough to kind of hear some things like this, but uh, if you're familiar with like the book of Acts and in the book of Acts, there are places where Paul will walk into a synagogue and then someone will say, hey, do you want to say anything? And doesn't that sound weird? Because it does in my culture to think that, you know, we'd be in a place like this and a stranger that we've never seen before comes, sits in the pews and I'm like, hey, would you like to share something? You know, that, that and people would say, well, he'd probably look like a Pharisee. Or, you know, or whatever. I'm not really sure about all of that, especially since he's kind of given all of that up to follow Jesus. But I just kind of, just to kind of give you a quick rundown on the way that a traditional synagogue service took place, because I really like some of the things that the Lord sort of set up in a synagogue service. And uh, there are really only three kind of basic portions of it. And uh, so I wanted to start with that, just so you kind of know, we kind of build the, the, our service off of that. And this is one of the reasons why I want you to know that we don't sing certain songs that are lovely Christian songs, but they're not necessarily fitting to what, as a matter of fact, we may change the way we even say this, uh, because I really like the way that it's being presented. So understand, the first section of it is two different parts. Um, the first part's called tefillah, and that comes from like the tefillah, which is the thing that hangs down on a prayer shawl. If you ever see those little tassels, if you're familiar with that. And, and really what it is, is it's a corporate time of prayer. That corporate time of prayer is led by a guy named a chazan. And a chazan is a cantor. In other words, he is a singer. That's what he does for a living. And what he sings, and it's important to note, is he sings prayers. And he leads other people in the corporate singing of prayers. And the purpose of that was that as a fellowship, we all wanted to sense how wonderful it is to seek the Lord together in prayer. That was the idea. They didn't call it worship. They called the entire service worship, but they never called singing worship. That's Christian culture. But traditionally, that wasn't the case. They led in prayer, and that prayer was corporate again. And they sang things like, for instance, the Berachim, the, the, the blessings. And they sang the Shema, or we're, to, hear, we're to, to listen, Israel. Because we were to love you, Lord, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
we didn't just recite it. It ultimately would grow into something that would be much less meaningful, where we would just repeat after it and stop making it a prayer. We'd almost just make it a repeated thing, like we're like we're reading in front of a class, if that makes sense. But understand, initially, that was the idea, was we corporately sang prayer. And I like that term, to be honest. More than worship music or even praise music, I love the idea of calling it sung prayer. What you will find on every song we sing here is a sung prayer. There are songs that are lovely you know, kind of let's jump up and down, spin around, high five for the Lord. Yeah, and we're going to shout and we're going to take the land and we're going to do this. And hey, maybe that's our lovely things. And I think there's probably a place for that, but not necessarily in the corporate service. I think there's a, I mean, I think as a musician that would go out and perform performance wise, I think they're great performance songs. And I think it's good they have those times where you can kind of whoop up this, the Christians in that kind of sense. You're going to go to battle and you're going to do that. But in the perspective of a church service, I love the idea of us starting with singing prayers. And, and I challenge you to find any song that we sing and tell me if that it's not directed to the Lord somewhere in the song somewhere. You're going to find it with every one of them. So that's the first part. Does that make sense so far? The second part's called the Amidah. And the Amidah is private prayers. And the way that private prayers worked is that small groups of people would pray. They would get together in small groups and they would pray. Families would pray with families or whatever the case would. The men would pray with the men. The women would pray with the women because they were normally separated. And the idea of that was to get a sense where we were now a much smaller group of people. We would pray individually and we would pray as a little group now, a few of us at a time. And the idea was, man, we just... We just really wanted to sense the Lord's leading. And that was kind of the idea. Now, you're probably aware of the word fact that we do that as well. So I know here's the problem is because it becomes so much of a routine, we just kind of do it because we do it now. But understand what it's supposed to be, really, is it's supposed to be a time where we can really sense the presence of the Lord as we were corporately praying. And then we get into these little private prayer places where what we really want to do now is just kind of make it now a little bit more like, how can I be praying for you? Where now there's this, and the idea of it is, part of it is to try to develop the, I mean, and it's such a buzzword today, but to develop community. I mean, today we call anything community. We could put ice cream out and everybody eats it, and like we had great community. Well, scripturally, the idea of it was is that we are to bear one another's burdens, confess our sins to one another, and to seek the Lord together. That's what scripture challenges us to do. And so it's like, hey, look, at, I'm really struggling with this. I could really use some prayer for this. And it isn't like, hey, I could just, hey, I, I need to pay something. Who here wants to give me 200 pounds? It's much more that I, I, I really, these are the struggles in my heart. Now, granted, sometimes you would be in a place, and I know that in the culture we're here, it is going to be a little bit more reserved than private. I get that. Where we don't want to just be like, hey, and we would, get, we would even be offended or very at least put off by a person who really did lay all their laundry out before us. But at least be able to say, hey, would you pray for my family? They're sick right now. Or, I mean, something where this is kind of heavy. And the part of it is, is we want to be able to lay before God with other people like the Aaron and her that would raise our hands. Everything that could distract us before we're going to get in the word. That was the idea is we wanted to be able to approach the word without any um, anger, without any vengeance, without any wrath at another person, without any unforgiveness. So often what would take place in the time of, of, of Amitabh is that maybe if, if Hugo knew 
Oh, Hugo, why would I say that? If, um, if Bruno knew, and actually I was, I was pointing to Lucas, but if Lucas you know, and, and Bruno were in a situation, let's try that again. If Lucas was in a situation where he knew that Bruno had something against him or more so that he had something against Bruno, after we had our tefillah, our corporate time, and normally he should even seek it before that, he would go and make a beeline for Bruno and go, hey, you know, are we okay I want to make sure. Now, listen, there are some times where no matter what you do, the person's not going to be, you're not going to be able to solve it in a minute. But you can at least say, you know, please know it is my intention, it is my desire to, 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 to make this right if there's any way to make this right. In some cases, some people, you're just going to be like, you know what, that's just not going to be the case. But can we agree to disagree and try to love each other just the same? So anyways, that's, all of that happens before any of the reading. Does that make sense? And the idea of it, it wasn't like we just sang songs so that we could feel good and get ourselves mentally ready or spiritually ready for the word. We were supposed to be developing something that felt good to sing among each other, to felt good to be and pray among each other. Because what we really wanted in that first sense was a sense not just that, because we were supposed to be living lives this way to God. And so now we're kind of looking and going, wasn't it great to be around other people that are living this way at the same time? And, we, and it was to create that sense that we're not alone that we really have a family as weird and as crazy as it may be it's still our family so that was our first of our set of our three sections the second area by the way is what's called the dashim desha and the dashim desha by the way initially was just the reading of the torah the first five books of the bible genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy however in 163 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes burned the Torah in front of the people, sacrificed the pig on the altar, uh, actually later, uh, earlier in the 160s, and then ultimately forbid the public reading of the Torah, but did not forbid the reading of any of the other scriptures. So what the people did at that point is they started reading the prophets. Now, the way that the Torah is read, just for what it's worth, is that it's actually broken up so that Genesis would get, I think it's 13 and then 12 and 11, 10, 10, so that every, by the time you were done, 53 weeks would be given over. Now, we're aware there's only 52. So on the last week, you would read the last two portions of Deuteronomy. And the idea of that was is that in every year, you would read the entire Torah. And no matter what synagogue you went to, and it's a lot like this with the, uh, I've learned this with the Anglican church, whatever synagogue you went to, they were on the same text. So, you know, whatever, if we were in numbers, if we were reading numbers, for instance, in this case, 28, you know, this week, we'd read numbers 29 next week. And no matter if you were in, you know, Nottingham, or if you were up in Sheffield, you would still be reading the same chapter because they would do the same thing everywhere they went. So at least that way, you, you know, you never lost track. Now, on the other side of that, when, when Antiochus Epiphanes forbid that, then what happened, of course, is that they started reading the prophets, and they called that the Haftorah. So it was the Torah and the Haftorah. And then what happened is after Antiochus Epiphanes was defeated and his army by what we would ultimately know as Hanukkah, during all of that time, they reinstated the Torah, but they didn't remove the prophets. So they did a reading of the Torah and the Haftorah was the idea. So every Sabbath... We had a time of corporate singing. We had a time of corporate prayer. And then we had a time of sort of more private prayer. And then after that, we had a time where we heard the Torah and we heard the Haftorah. In other words, the word was read, was the idea. We made sure that we heard the simple, straight-out reading of the word. And then the only thing left was what was called 
the time of exhortation and the time of doctrine. Those were the two things that were required. Now, exhortation was a time where someone could possibly be led to go, oh, I realize from this scripture I should be changing this part of my behavior. And that is a really cool way to see exhortation. Now, ultimately, what was starting to happen in some of these synagogues is some of the women, and I remind you, we're separated from the men, would stand up and start to say to their husbands across the room, did you hear that, Saul? You know, that kind of thing. It's one of the reasons why Paul says, ladies, you should be quiet in the service, was because he didn't want that kind of thing. Today, you just elbow the guy next to you. But in those days, you stood up and said it across the room. But it's interesting because Paul even says it. And you say, well, that sounds like an Old Testament thing. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells then the one who is his legacy, Timothy, he says, give yourself over to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Or we might say it as red ministry, R-E-D, reading, exhortation, and doctrine. It's the red doctrine. It's the red ministry. Doctrine meant that you made sure that you were actually teaching the text. You weren't just reading it. And then, and this is what can happen in a Bible study if you're not careful, is that you can have a time where you're just reading and there is some form of exhortation. Like, but what will happen is people say, well, what do you think it means? Well, I think it means, and you know, sometimes that can go anywhere but what the text is really saying. And then it's like, but there's usually some form of exhortation. I think like we should all sell our houses and lay the money at someone's feet and all live together in some commune because it happened in Acts. You know, or whatever it's like. That can, and that's exhortation. And of course you weigh that out. On the other side of a doctrine is, well, let's teach the text so that there's some decent teaching through the text. What can we learn from it? And then we ended with a song. was kind of the idea. In those days they kind of sang a, a hymn or read a hymn. It all depends on how it ended. So that is the traditional synagogue service. And that's, by the way, pretty similar to what we do. So, you know, I mean, the only way we do it, of course, is that there's going to be this time, again, of corporate sung prayers, which would be our time of praise. And then there's the time of I mean, our private prayers where we encourage people to get together and pray among themselves. But please understand, because you guys are kind of the hardcore, you're the ones that are here on Wednesdays. For those who are here on, on Sundays as well, know that the heart behind that is to develop true and honest community. But what we're doing is we're really developing, we're drawing people in so that they can be a part of something where they feel safe to be able to let their heart out a little bit. And, uh, and it's, I find it's beautiful that you're singing the praise first because usually that's one way to kind of open up your heart. And then you're opening, it's sort of like you're opening up your heart to God and then you're opening up your heart to each other. And then after that, there's a time where the word is read. And then after that, and ultimately, probably what will happen is we'll have a couple people that are just going to be readers. I mean, people who are just really gifted. I mean, there's a couple of guys that I know, even right now, that the moment they start reading, it's like I melt like butter. You know, you just hear them, and they're like, oh, that's just a beautiful, you know. Um, the problem is, it's like if, if, for instance, if we had Shirley reading the text, I'd close my eyes, and I would see Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast, because her voice is just so distinctly Angela Lansbury, you know. And it's like, oh, and that, and it's so beautiful. But get, get the idea of that. And, and by the way, for what it's worth as well, my heart's desire, and it's not to pick on women, but it is to have men read. And the purpose behind that is, is that I want a fellowship to see godly men. And let's be honest, that's a really rare thing these days. Men who are actually willing to step forward and be men of the word that they're reading. And so my challenge is to do that. I really want to see guys do that. And, I, you know, it's like, and I, the cool thing is most of the women that I know, they're like, that would really be great. Now, granted, most of the women are single, but I, I don't know if that, anyways. Uh, anyways, you get the other. 
And then we have the time where we're reading the word, and then there's a time where it's being taught. But also, we always end in that we want that exhortation where there's the coming to Christ and the chance to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. I always want to give that chance. So does that sort of make sense why we do it the way we do? With all of that said, we're going to break that up tonight, and we're going to do it the opposite. We're going to do the reading first, and we're going to do our text first, and then we're going to have our time of sung prayer. So at least you know that. <clears throat> Before we do that, I just want to say, by the way, there are some things you don't find in it, like announcements, although I think it's healthy to have them. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things you don't find in the corporate service that there was, by the way, there was no passing of a hat either. There was never like a little, you know, a really expensive gold plated, you know, velvet bag that you get to pass with really nice solid wood handles to the next guy to put your money in. Uh, and anyways, I shouldn't even talk like that. So we are tonight in Second Corinthians chapter 3. And I'd like you to look at it. And we're probably not going to go very far, uh, especially because we've already done sort of our mini devotion. But Second Corinthians chapter 3. It's my fault because I had grabbed a boba tea before this, and it's like, no, you can't just take a sip. You, know, you have to sip and chew. It's really hard. To, anyways, let's have our time of the reading of the word, shall we? Verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of condemnation, <laughs> epistles of commendation, that's a harder word to say today. To you, or letters of commendation from you, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart. We'll read through the whole chapter, though I don't believe we'll teach through it. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit, Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was more made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, 
who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on the heart, on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Lord, it's your word, your time. Minister profoundly in it. And I thank you for the privilege of what you're going to do in this time. Have your way, Lord, I pray. Thank you for this beautiful, wonderful flock and for the privilege of being a part of it. Minister, Lord, to and through us. May we have so much fun in your word and be so therapized in this time. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Say tonight as a would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. The final verses of the previous chapter, and it's important to note that Paul didn't write chapter markings. It isn't like he said, now, brand new idea, chapter 3. That was written 500 plus years later to help us get to a text. Paul was just moving on. The last two verses he spoke of in the previous chapter, he'd said, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who was sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as sincerity, as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. There's obviously a comparison between some people who are false teachers that were really making a, making a pretty pound off of this ministry thing. They were making a lot of money. And now Paul turns to him and he goes, oh, do we begin to commend ourselves? Now, this chapter breaks up into three basic parts for what it's worth. And I find it interesting because there are really, in essence, three things we all crave. And I would dare assume every one of us here does. The first of them is validation. That's verses 1 through 3. To be validated. What it would mean to be validated here. Second is sufficiency. To feel like you're sufficient. Where your sufficiency is. Where things are enough. And, th and that's verses 4 to 6. And then the third is transcendence. Things that last. Don't you just get tired of planned obsolescence? Don't you get tired of the fact that you kind of even know sometimes Apple may come up with a product and already have the newer version of it planned in years in advance where they could have just put it in the original version, but they didn't. So they could have a newer version. And it's like you watch the lines, the cues for the new phone or for the new thing. And then you, and, and it's like you get tired of it. I do at least. I get tired of things not lasting. But what about in ministry? How dangerous is it to try to find validation in ministry? How dangerous is it to try and sufficiency, to try to find, oh, I'm enough, this is enough in ministry? 
How rough is it to try to find transcendence? In other words, that you're putting your hand to something that you're really kind of hoping will last. Because in the end of it all, I think anybody with enough energy and know-how with just enough intellectual agility could probably create something, but for it to last takes an act of God. And that's going to be the answer for all of these, by the way. Where is your validation found? In God, through Christ. Where is your sufficiency found? In God, through Christ. Where is the transcendence found? In God, through Christ. It's your only hope in this. Here's the problem, though. Corinth, as a church or as a place, had developed now some form of ordaining board. And the idea was they only, they only ordained those they trusted and or that they knew someone else that they trusted that would ordain them. And ordaining, in essence, simply meant that it validated them so that they were able to perform some form of ministry among them. Now, the principle is not a bad one. You don't want somebody popping in here and they kind of look like they really know what they're doing, but they don't, and then you just kind of give them the freedom to go and play with your kids or the freedom to come in here and speak to the flock. I mean, obviously, there needs to be some form of criteria that is going to be available. The question, the issue was not having that kind of ordaining board, per se. The problem was the criteria they were using. It was the constitution of requirements that has now become the issue because the problem is is that the Corinthian church was questioning Paul's credentials, which wouldn't have been such a big deal to Paul, except he was the one who planted the church. And the group that met would have never met together in the first place had they not all gotten saved. And the reason they had all gotten, they would have not gotten saved at least the way that they had, unless Paul had been the guy that was there. Paul had gotten there, he preached the gospel, they all got saved, he collected them all, built a church out of the whole thing, and then left, and then they became the ordaining board to question Paul's criteria, Paul's credentials, which seems insane to me. But the reason was, and please hear me in this, because as rough as that sounds and as insane as that sounds to me, I've watched it happen over and over and over again. All you need is a really classy or tricky or, or confident speaker who sounds like they know what they're talking about. That's all it takes. And they come in with their big shebang and everything is smoke and mirrors and the, the, the streamers and the, the confetti fall from the sky and then you're sweating holy oil and you're shaking and flipping and flopping around like fish and all of this other stuff. And then they start laying out some kind of crazy doctrine which is completely against Scripture and it so damages people that now... All of a sudden, the same person who has invested their life in that person now, now they're looking at him going, I don't think you're really the guy. And if you think that you're in a bad place if that happened, it happened even to Jesus. And worse yet, it happened even to Jesus by John the Baptist. It'd be one thing if it was a Pharisee. But the guy that actually said, I wouldn't have known who it was, except God told me, the one that you see the Holy Spirit land on like a dove and, and stay there, that's going to be your guy. Jesus is baptized in front of John the Baptist. The dove comes down, the Holy Spirit comes down, lands upon his shoulder, and even funnier yet, a voice comes from heaven, cracks open the sky and says, this, whoa, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And still later he has to ask, are you the right guy? How much more validation does Jesus need? But here's the problem. We all come in with our preset ideas of expectations. And that was the problem people had with Jesus. 
They had an idea. I mean, they all knew Messiah was coming. The problem is, well, what did the Messiah look like? Like, well, as far as I'm concerned, this is what he should be like. And what's interesting is every person that had a vested interest in that always seemed to have a vested interest in being number two. They were, I mean, Jesus, sure, he's going to be Lord, but oh, I'm going to be vice Lord. And we even saw that with the disciples arguing over that same point. And how sad is it that we can do that in any church? We can do that with any ministry. We can do that with any minister. And you can, and, and, and it's, here's the warning, because the Lord, you know this, we are the kind of ministry that raises up ministers. That doesn't mean every one of you is going to wear a clerical collar perfectly. Not, the, the idea of it is that every one of you are going to be prayerfully, one thing you're going to know is that every one of you are called to ministry. Now, that doesn't mean you're called necessarily to vocational ministry. In other words, you're going to collect your check from the church. But it does mean that you are called to ministry. And that ministry may be in a stall in Camden. That ministry may be, you know, out there somewhere walking the streets in the beat. That ministry may be as a mother or as a nanny. That ministry may be as a, you know, as a solicitor. That ministry may be as in a programmer or whatever the case is. The bottom line is we're all called to ministry. And when we're all called to ministry, I want to let you know and I want to warn you you are going to invest your life in people that you are, think are going to be really, really good and they're really going to get it. And one moment they're just, they're not. Hey, some days they do, some days they don't. And you know what? The temptation would be to stop loving people altogether or even stop loving that individual because you're like, well, look at what I'm getting for that. But I've learned from Jesus. He didn't do that. He loved Judas, even washed his feet. He loved Judas to the end. And more than likely, you'll never get a, I'll never get a real Judas. I will get some people that act dumb, but mo- most of them seem to come around sooner or later after the damage has been done. And the reason I say that is, is that what Paul is experiencing, I want to warn you, every one of you are going to experience too. And what they're going to say in essence is, you know, I don't really think you're really called to this. And the question in a moment like that is, where do you get your validation? What do you stand on? And that's going to be the point here. In the first few verses, now please understand in this, in those first three verses, what he's going to tell us, and it's going to develop for the rest of the text, is that there is a letter of commendation. The question is, who is writing it? And either God is going to write that letter, or a man is going to write that letter. When God writes it, he will write it by his spirit. When man writes it, he will write it all with ink. When God writes it, he will write it on the, the tablets of human hearts. When man writes it, he will write it on another document. They'll both be documents, the human heart and the piece of paper. Now, for what it's worth, I've been ordained in regards to that whole legal mumbo-jumbo thing, churches have recognized the calling, and I appreciate that. That's fine, and that allows me to legally, in America at least, it allows me to legally marry and bury, I guess is the way they would say it. But please understand in all of that, that there are a lot of people who have their, their certificate that clearly it does not prove that they're called to the ministry they're doing. And that is, if you'll pardon me for saying, that is the danger of 
anything that is manufactured. And sometimes seminaries can be very much that. I'm not telling you every one of them is, but that's the danger in it is, is they're not there to, they're not there to try to do inspect your calling. They're there just to try to equip it, and then send you off with a certificate that may look at, may make it look like you actually have a calling. May I say it's kind of like this. What we're told in 1 Samuel 16:7 is that man looks at the outer appearance. So to validate from man's perspective, we'll just kind of look and see what a man does for a bit. And he may be able to say the right things, do the right things, act properly. And you were all aware of the fact that anyone can have a double life so they could really play it up in front of the party that would maybe signing the certificate, but really live a life that's very different from that elsewise. That's the problem with the outer appearance. But on the other side of it, we know that the Lord looks at the levav, literally the inside. And the way that Jesus told us, well, then how do we do it if we're men? How do I look at the outside and still see the inside without being judgmental about something I really don't have keen insight into? Well, the way that Jesus said it was really simple. In Luke 6:44, he told us that a tree is known by its fruit. And what you look for then is you look at its trail. Now, Jesus had a trail of enemies. There was no doubt there were a train. And by the way, many of them were religious. Matter of fact, it appears to me that Jesus' greatest enemies were the religious party. Both Herod and Pilate said he was innocent. Caving into the people, they sent Jesus to be crucified. But the religious leaders were constantly in opposition with Jesus because he was blowing their feng shui. He was, he was stomping all over their groovy. But if you were to look beyond that, what happens to the people that they've interacted with? Is there a difference? Jesus said they would be known by their fruit. But can I say, this is the danger of a seminary. And I'm not telling you all of them. I'm telling you one that where the point is manufacturing out people and that their success is just how many people they put out. Is It's basically like a bonsai thing. They're busy carving the tree into a bonsai, but they're not necessarily trying to sweeten the fruit. And here's why. Because if it were the case, the investment would be primarily in regards to character. And that demands so much more than what one person can do for a class of 30 people. It demands things to happen within the 30 people. Because real character is developed that way because it's how they interact with each other. And you kind of notice that. So please understand in this. When Paul begins this, and this is why we're only going to go through the first few verses, he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? How is he commending himself? He's like, well, we're not like others who are peddling the word of God. That was the last chapter. He's going, am I trying to promote myself? No, absolutely not at all. Do we need a, some form of commendation from you? Are you going to be our validation? Ironically, in this, for the ministry, people are going to be, in one way or another, the validation, not in regards to your personal ministry, that will come from the Lord. Your calling comes from the Lord, but ultimately what other people are going to see to validate it are going to be other people. And here's the crazy thing. I've had more than, more than a small truckload of people that have come across my desk in the years in the past that have said, I'm an evangelist, I'm called to evangelize. My first question, of course, is awesome. Where have you evangelized up to this point? Well, I haven't yet. But I just know the moment I land in Africa, I'm going to be an evangelist. Maybe so. But it's really hard to see that without the fruit. And here's the thing, and I really do love this, if you'll pardon me for saying, is that in regards to 
the um, the Jewish people, there's sort of an expression, uh, and, and it's kind of important to note. And, and, and the idea of it is, is you do, and then you were called. Is the and the idea of it is, is if you opened up a shoe shop, and you had just shoes wall to wall. And you were there, you held laces in your hand, you had polish in the other hand, and you walked around and you could tell me about every shoe in the store. You could tell me the history of Converse Chuck Taylors. To the Jewish mindset, you would not be called a shoe salesman until you sold your first pair of shoes. Up to that point, you could be called a shoe expert. You could be called a shoe shop owner. But you wouldn't be called a shoe salesman until you sold some shoes. Does that make sense? That's the interesting portion of that. Because there's so many people that call themselves things, and that's the problem within Christianity. We can hang the shingle and call ourselves something, but from the perspective of this culture, you should do something. There should be something that happens first, and we should see it in its fruits. And so listen to this. It tells us here, do we begin to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles, which means letters, right, of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Now, for me to write this letter to you, does it need to be validated, but do we need to have somebody else write a letter? And have you ever gotten this? I get them, of course. Someone says, hey, I've got this ministry, and here's six other references that come with it from pastors somewhere else. Hey, this is, my name is Bob from the Calvary Chapel and so-and-so. This guy's really the real deal, you know. And it's like, of course I get that, because you don't know, but I I don't know Bob, it's still not going to do anything for me either. And he goes, do I really need that? Could you imagine if I had written the letter to the church that we had planted back in the States? And I said, you know, I've heard some things I'm a little concerned about, and I would like to ask you to pray about these things, and I'd love to see these changes happen. And the pastor that's there, Jack, said, you know what, if we've got a letter from the pastor that had planted this church, I'd like to read it to you. And he started to read it. And there were a group of people that said, who does this guy think he is? He's not here anymore. Who does he think he is? How do we even know this guy's even a pastor? How do we even know this guy's really anything? And ironically, the people that might be saying that are people who've come to know the Lord through the ministry in the years past. Wouldn't that hurt? And it's amazing because people can say the craziest things that you have invested your life in. And you know, we all lose perspective if we're not careful. It's so easy to listen to the enemy. And the moment you listen to the enemy, you don't interpret anything properly. But Paul says, is that really what we need? Verse 2 says, no, you are our epistle. I mean, if the government here were to ask me, how can we be confident that you are a pastor? How could we be confident you're anything? What would be the wisest choice for me? Would it not be to bring you with me? So follow me on this for a moment. We're almost done with this, believe it or not. Cause, and it's, the truth validation is in regards to the fruit. This is what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. In verses 11 and 12, we read that Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body in Christ. The first of those groups is apostles. Well, what would be the truest proof of an apostle? church is planted. That's what an apostle does. He goes out to Christless places, brings Jesus, and then sees a church planted there. What you will find more than likely is that Matt Pottinger, who you will meet on sat on Sunday, is, a, is an apostle. Now, he doesn't walk around in a robe and eats bugs. Now, maybe he walks around in a robe after a shower, but I don't know that. I don't hang around with him that time. 
But his heart is to see churches planted. That's his heart. Now understand, a, an apostle will be very different from a pastor. Because an apostle will be fundamentally concerned about the work, not the people. Now that, that doesn't make him worse than another person. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about people. He just wants to make sure that the work has integrity. So he wants to see the right guys raised up. He wants to make sure that the thing is comfortable and, and self-generating in Christ before he moves on to the next thing. That's kind of his idea. He will want to raise up pastors to go pastor. I get that. He probably won't be laying awake at night most of the time worrying about the sheep. He'll be more concerned about the work. And to be honest, a guy that is an apostle needs to know he's an apostle, not a pastor, because if he is... I mean, I've sat with a gentleman in Jerusalem that was like, I just, I've been here for the church for 10 years and I don't feel a thing for the flock. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, what's your walk with Christ like? And he's like, my walk with Christ seems solid. I don't get it. I'm like, well, maybe the issue isn't, maybe you're not called to shepherd that, those sheep. And maybe you're just called to see the, the work planted and then move on. And the moment that happened, it was like he got spring launched into the, and he was like, and now he's like set free. And he's like, oh my goodness, all I want to see are churches planted. And wow. And it isn't like he, he really loves his pastors and he pastors his pastors. He just doesn't necessarily lay awake thinking about the sheep that were underneath them. Because to be honest, that's not where his heart is. That's not where his calling is. If he was so emphatically in love with a particular flock, he wouldn't be able to go out and plant other churches because if, if, otherwise he would feel betraying them. Does that make any sense? And there are, there are apostles. And when you look at a guy like that, now you look at a guy like K.P. Yohannan, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's in South India. I mean, you talk to him, he's also a bit of a prophet. I mean, you can tell because I've never listened to a K.P. Yohannan message, even when my walk is awesome with Christ and not felt like I'm a miserable, rotten worm in Christ. I mean, he's real serious. But understand, he's a guy that really just wants to see churches planted everywhere. And it isn't like he's going to get to know any of those fellowships very well, but he really wants to see the integrity of those churches planted well. Bible-based, gospel-preaching apostles. Second, are prophets. What would be the truest proof of a prophet? Would be repentant serious Christians. And this is the problem today, is that people that call themselves prophets, to be honest, appear to be more like fortune tellers than spokesmen for God. I mean, they're more there, to t at least the ones that I've seen a lot of times in schools. You have schools for this, where it's like you can learn how to become a little bit more accurate in your, your predictions, which is really concerning, because the Bible says they have to be 100% right 100% of the time, or you stone them. Uh, my brother would say, you know why we have so many false prophets in the world? Because we stop stoning them. That's kind of simple. But understand in this, though, a real prophet is somebody that stands up to God's people and tells them to get serious about who they are in Christ. And let me ask you, do we need prophets today? I'm absolutely. Could you imagine what would happen? Probably what would happen traditionally with the prophets. They would get stoned and kicked out and deported and all the other things. Because that's what happens when prophets stand up with people that are really not interested in anything but the comfort that they're in. There is a need for that. Evangelists, I think that would be an easy one. What would be the truest proof of an evangelist? You would start seeing people come to know Christ. I mean, I hear, I hear so many things called something evangelism that seems like the something is really the key. We have friendship evangelism. Oh, awesome. What does that look like? Well, we befriend them. Yeah, got that with the first word. Tell me about the second. Well, we befriend them. Yeah, yeah. And then we go out and we eat with them and we go see movies with them and we want them to feel really comfortable about And then somewhere down the line, we kind of drop the bomb on them and say, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. And I'm like, that's not evangelism. 
evangelism somewhere down the line. The gospel is being preached and they know they have a choice to make. Are they going to accept the gift of Jesus Christ or not? Now, hey, you can do that going to see a movie. You can do that going to eat. The problem is, is if you're going to do friendship evangelism, can you do both words? You know, we have these survey evangelisms. Well, what's that? We go out and we pretend like we're taking a survey and we ask them a bunch of questions about God. I'm like, awesome. And then what? Well, then we have them. They walk away thinking about God. I'm like, but that's not evangelism. You can tell that's a little bit of prophetic part of me saying, hey, 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 we need to get serious about this if we're going to call it evangelism. Because you know what happens? So you're thinking about God and then a bunch of guys come dancing around in orange outfits. You've seen them, right? With a little mustard on their head with their boom, you know, their little boom box and their bunch of drums. And they're going, hari, hari. And it's like, yeah, they're still thinking about God. Is that going to be beneficial when they run into those guys? Or there's someone that's going to hand them their literature that's on, an, on almost every stop these days. There's got to be more to it, beloved. We're a Christian band. Oh, awesome. What does that mean? Well, we're a band and we happen to be Christian. Well, what's your ministry? Well, we play music. Well, great. So does Black Sabbath. I don't call them a ministry. Well, if they are, there's not a, there's not a positive side to it. You get the idea. But a real evangelist preaches the gospel. It's that simple. Now, that doesn't mean they stand in front of a million people. There are those that do it that way. There are some that are my, actually my favorite evangelists, and they're like, they're rabid dogs. They just happen to be every time. Don't put them on a public plane, public anything, unless you expect them to share. I mean, that, I mean, I have a friend, and he's like so great. He's actually from near Disneyland, and the more I think about it, that makes perfect sense. And his name's Roger, and he's just a sweet older guy. And he's the kind of guy that leans in and he talks like this. And you just want to, he's like a plush toy as a human being. And, and he just, can I talk to you about Jesus? And it's like so great. And like, when he's someplace where someone's got their headphones on, he'll tap them on the shoulder till they take their headphones out. I mean, now if I did that, I'd probably get punched in the face. This guy, I don't know, this God gives him, God gives him favor. And then he's like, can I talk to you about Jesus? And, you know, and like all those people writing books about how to be really creative about sharing their faith. This guy like just tore the book in half, threw it in the fire, and he's, can I talk to you about Jesus? There's really nothing like creative about it other than, or, or like maybe there is. The creativity is just doing it. When we were in Russia with this guy, bless Roger, we had hired, and this was part of the fun, we had hired a bunch of translators that weren't Christian. And what they had to do, and pray for, can you imagine, pray for these gals, they got stuck with me and with Roger. I mean, so what happened is, I, these girls preach the gospel clearly over 70 to 100 times a day. Because every time we turned around, and these poor girls, they had to translate it. And after a while, I started to learn how, we, because they said it the same way over and over again. And so then I'd ask my friend, is this really, right? okay. And then I'd start saying it too, and they'd look over at me. But I remember Roger, this is classic Roger, as he's walking. And the, the two gals that, that we got hooked up with are both like, you know, they're like six foot tall, thin as a rail. They look kind of like supermodels in the sense they're like, you know, the, a good wind would blow them over, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, they're, and they're like kind of very, they're really young and they're kind of like, and, the, and, and he takes one of them and he walks by and there is this military bus. And this military bus is just full of soldiers, which is appropriate for a military bus. Would you agree? And he walks in and he goes, let's go in there and cheer. And she goes, Nyet, nyet, no, 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 no. He's like, come on. He's like, they will kill us, is what she says to him. He's like, oh, come on, where's your faith? 
So this guy drags this, this beautiful, you know, stick gal up into this thing. And he says to them, uh, you know, of course, he's going to tell her and she's going to have to say it to all these guys, right? I mean, this is a bag of crisps in front of a bunch of hungry seagulls. And so, you know, and she goes, he goes, tell him, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And she goes, uh-huh. and then she says it in Russian. And the guy's all, and I can hear it from the outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. And she's like dragging him, trying to pull him. He's like, no, 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 no. 30 seconds. Can I talk to you for 30 seconds? And they were like, duh, okay. So he shared, he says, here's, here's what Jesus did. He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, and just like Scripture promised, he rose again. And he wants to forgive you of all the rotten things you guys have done. And you guys have done a lot of rotten things. And he wants to forgive you, every one of them. And she's looking at me, he's like, just say it. And so she says it, and he goes, now raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus. And every one of them but one raised their hand. The one that hadn't raised his hand was sleeping. So, and then they all pray to receive the Lord, and he walks out, he, he walks out, and she walks out, and she looks like one of those deers that have just seen the headlights, right? Her eyes are gigantic, and they're so huge now, they're like pushing her cheekbones down into her lips. And she's like, ah, oh, what just happened? Both of those girls gave their life to Jesus Christ. You would imagine. That guy's an evangelist. And it wasn't just because he, to be honest, because a bunch of people got saved on a bus, but ultimately because he was the only guy that would go up there and do it. And as a result of that, people got saved. Pastors. It's the truest sign of a pastor. To be honest, in all of the years of ministry, the truest sign of a pastor is going to be a couple things. One is healthy, safe sheep. Sheep that are safe to love God without, with complete abandon and without restriction. The truest proof, though, of a real pastor from the way I look at it will not just be the fellowship that... I mean, guys can make people love them. But they're actually safe to love each other is when he has to do make the hard choices. When he has to sit with an individual and say, you really shouldn't be here. When he has to, to, to talk to someone and say, you know what, you've, this isn't your... You know, the hard choices, the things that break his heart and, and, and you know it. That's where you really see a pastor, when he has to lay down his life. And a teacher. How do you know when a teacher's been there? Because you actually walk out taught and not just confused. And not just learning about something that's not eternal. It takes a spiritual act to learn spiritual and eternal things. The problem with teaching is that you can, there's a gift of teaching and a spiritual gift of teaching, or I should say that there's a talent of teaching and a spiritual gift of teaching. I mean, a guy who teaches math so that people can learn how to do calculus, he's clearly talented. But that doesn't mean he's spiritually gifted at it. And I've seen guys that were actually talented at teaching but weren't spiritually gifted at it. Oh, they were good communicators. And I've watched a guy compare something, and I still don't know what, to changing a carburetor in a car. No, I'm not a mechanical guy, but by the time we were done, I was confident I could change a carburetor in a car. But I had no idea what in the world he was talking about eternally. I think he was very talented at communicating the temporary. Now, maybe it was just my bad day, but I'd like to hear the guy again. But do you see what I'm saying? But for a person, because you don't have to be super gifted to speak. You don't have to be the greatest communicator to be able to, to be honest, to be able to be in a position where you can lay out before people 
eternal truths and they can get it. That just takes an act of God's Holy Spirit. And here's the point in all of that. Is that there are two different types of validation. There's the validation of man and then there's the validation of God. God's validation will produce eternal fruit. Man's validation ultimately will produce death and that's what we're going to see at the end of this. Now all of that said, I don't know what God's called you to, but I would sure love to find out with you. I'd love to continue to invest in you to plant the word in you, to challenge you to grow in Christ, to love on each other. And ultimately, as you do that, you're going you're gonna to serendipitously fall into your ministry and you'll do it the right way, which is loving God first. That's my heart's desire for every one of you and for me too. The danger is if we're trying to get our validation from people, not out of people. From people would mean we're looking for somebody else that's a man to make that decision. But the problem is Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 about those that prayed or that gave and prayed and fasted to be seen by men. And the problem is you get so busy doing a dumb show in front of people, you you really bear forth no fruit. Because you're too busy praying to be seen by people than actually really praying. Or giving. And can I just dare say this becomes part of the danger of the ice bucket challenge. If Jesus says, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand, or don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, I'm not trying to pick on people. And if you've done the ice bucket challenge, good for you. You know, I mean, as long as you're aware of where the money goes. But it really has caught on. I think one of the things is you're allowed to give in a way that you can actually, I wonder, I mean, if you just, the challenge was just to dump buckets of ice on you, but didn't give anything. Do you think it would be a spiral? I mean, was it the ice bucket was, that was so viral or the fact that you got to give and put an ice bucket on you? I, I Anyways, that's just to consider. But here's the challenge in all. As a Christian, we're actually supposed to do stuff so that nobody sees. I mean, it happens in such a way that you stumble across it in a bank statement two years or so say two months later and ask your wife, oh, never mind, that's another story. But I mean, you know, we are like, oh, we gave, oh, that's awesome we gave to that. <laughs> you know? And then the point of it is, is like the idea of just really wanting to give so that the Lord can see and nobody else. Well, for what that's worth, in the end of it all, Paul is looking at a church that's looking and going, and, and, and I have to tell you the reason why, and then we'll bring it to prayer. It appears to me that the people that have rose, risen up in this Corinthian church were basically name it, claim it people. They were health and prosperity people. And by the way, what's interesting is that has never ceased in the body of Christ. The teaching is really a simple one. The teaching is one that says that, you know, if you really love God and you have enough faith, you'll never be sick, you'll never be poor, you'll never really have to struggle with bills or anything, you'll never really have to struggle with anything. Now, you can go to churches like that today. And of course, the ironic thing is I've seen churches like this, and a lot of them prosper in Africa. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Africans. The point is, I think it's strange in a place where everybody's very poor that they still, and I get how that would be interesting, where you'd be like, you know, if you really had enough faith, you would have a really big house, you would be really healthy, but you're in a place where nobody has a big house. Nobody even thought about having a big house until the church showed up. And everybody struggles with some form of physical malaise. And maybe the water. But, and what happens is there's this horrible problem where if you then, the natural result of that is if you aren't healthy, clearly there must be a, a crisis in your faith. If you lost your job, 
There must be a crisis in your faith. Well, what if you lost your job because you actually refused to compromise your, your faith? You don't have enough faith because you didn't compromise your faith, and therefore you got fired? And if things get rough, you got a bad haircut, clearly that is a lack of faith. You know, if, if you are struggling and somebody has a problem with you, clearly that must be a lack of faith. Well, there's a real problem with that. And that's Paul. Because Paul was suffering all of those things. He was getting chased out of towns. He was getting stoned to death. He was getting beat, severely beat. By the time that he shows up in Corinth, he was very unimpressive to look at. More than likely got malaria up in the Antioch, the Taurus Mountains near Antioch, Pisidia. And he was, he was in really bad shape. He didn't have a lot of money. And he certainly didn't have a lot of health. He was a mess. But he was on fire for Jesus. And you can understand why the people were starting to doubt Paul. Because all they did is they bought hook, line, and sinker, this doctrine that you have to be rich and healthy to really, that's God's blessings. Hey, I can agree with you. God could bless you with health. May he bless you with health. But I've often said here, and just for the reinforcement of it, God's number one concern for you is his relationship with you. And what he wants is for you to be intimate with, with him. And he's jealous. He's only jealous not because it's a character flaw, but because the only thing he wants is you and me. And therefore would rather, and Jesus told us that, he would rather us embrace him with one hand or one eye or one foot than run to our own demise with full vision. Because in the end, the only thing that really matters is our walk with him. And it seems like Paul was doing just fine there. And so this church is starting to say, well, I'm not really sure of Paul. I mean, not because I'm not really sure because people aren't getting saved. I'm not really sure because their churches aren't being planted. I'm not really sure because God's really following it, even with great signs. But I'm not really sure because you're not well. I'm not really sure because you're struggling. Not with sin, per se, but financially. I'm not really sure about your ministry because, and that's what you have here. Because it seems like everywhere you go, someone chases you out. Someone has a problem with you. I mean, could you imagine if you were to look and you were trying to find a reason to condemn Paul, how easy it would be? Because the moment you get on that bandwagon, you will always find reasons to condemn someone. It's just that simple. So what will happen will be like, well, if you chased Paul's line down, look at everywhere he goes, someone hates him. Is that really the call of a minister? I mean, and the religious in some cases are the ones who have the biggest problem with them. Does that really sound like a man of God to you? I mean, and, and the feathers he ruffles and the people he angers. Do you really think this guy's called the ministry? Now, look, you can do all of those things because you're a giant jerk, too. We're aware of that. But Paul was just uncompromising about Jesus. And Jesus had the same problem. You can't tell me that if you really loved God, you wouldn't make any enemies. Well, then what happened with Jesus? The cross tells me otherwise. You can't tell me that you would never suffer if you had faith because tell me about how that works out with the cross. You can't tell me that no one will ever hate you or that you'll always be popular or you'll always be wealthy because the moment you look at Jesus who said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm homeless. That's what he's saying. Jesus was homeless. And he went from place to place. He took in, why do you think he took invitations from people when they invited him to eat? 
Because more than likely because he got to eat as well as the lesson he would teach there. Did Jesus look rich? Oh, in every way eternal, yes. But from every way temporal, no. He didn't live in a big house. Oh, he does now. But he didn't then. He lived under the Thousand Star Hotel. That means he laid out and stared at stars. As a baby, his parents had to leave the country to not get murdered. Remember that? And they had to flee to Egypt. And when they came back, they found out that the guy that took over was just as nasty, so they couldn't go back to the home that they had, so they had to go back to the home they had way back before that, in Nazareth. Does that sound like great faith? And they lived in obscurity until Jesus emerged out of nowhere, was tempted for 40 days, and then from that point on, someone stood toe-to-toe with him. From the moment he was baptized, he's had opposition. The guy always had opposition but he gave his life freely to redeem us anyways. Would you say Jesus was committed? I would. Would you say that Jesus suffered? I would. Would you say that Jesus was hated? I would. Would you say that Jesus lived even with great suffering? I would. Would you say that Jesus wasn't wealthy? I would. In regards to monetary, earthly monetary, yes. So we don't welcome that doctrine here. But let me say this, though, on the other side. I am a prosperity teacher just not like people teach prosperity. If you think the best thing God has to offer you is money, you are robbing God. If you think the best thing that God has for you is physical health, you are robbing God. Because all of the things that we do with our physical body are ultimately going to come to an end one way or another. You could jog, you can take vitamins, and you think you're going to, you know, you're going to just, you know, aggrandize your life cycle and then what happens is you've picked up your vitamins, you're jogging and you get hit by a bus on your way home and there you are. Vitamins are still in your hand. You can't stop that. Well, you can get out of the road but sooner or later things still happen. And what people really want in all of that physical health Christ gives us in the deepest depths of our soul and what people really want with all that money and they can't get I've had more money than I could spend. I've had more popularity than I could ever want. I've had all of the power that I thought that influenced enough things and it never brought me any form of pleasure. I felt like there was something wrong with me and then I realized the problem wasn't me. What people are looking in all of that is what Christ gives us. That's where the real prosperity is. The prosperity is not in getting lots of money so you could buy more stuff that doesn't make you happy when you can find joy in Christ. The prosperity is not in getting powerful over people so you feel like you have some kind of freedom, but then you are a slave to your own home and you have to set the alarm when you sleep at night. The real freedom is in God's Spirit, and that's what it says at the end of this, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's where real freedom is. It's not going to be in being so popular that everybody knows your name and applauds you when you walk in a room. Because in the end of it all, the same people that could applaud you and call and say, truly he's a God, but with three or four verses later, we'll grab stones to throw them at you. And you watch it with all kinds of popular people all over the television set all the time. But on the other side of it, there's a day where you can walk in and your father, your father would say to you, well done. Good job, son. Faithful servant, well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And this celebration never ends. So don't tell me about earthly prosperity. Hey, you got some money? Good, do something good with it. You're healthy? Good, do something good with it. You know? You're somewhat popular? Do something with it. But do something eternal with it. 
Because for all the things that people are chasing after, whether you know it or not, we have it. Don't trade that for the other. Because you will find yourself to be the biggest fool of them all. And so when they look and say, Paul, we don't know. And Paul goes, do I really have to commend myself? Let's look at it from an eternal perspective. Is this going to make any difference? You guys are driving new Bentleys. Congratulations. You guys have a house in Chelsea. Congratulations. And you paid cash for it. Congratulations. If you went and you took off your watch and you sold it, you could buy another Bentley. Congratulations. And you're miserable. And I know it. And I'm going to serve the Lord. And if I get beat up for it, I'm going to keep serving him. And I'm not going to, it's not going to be, you can't beat the joy out of me. And I'm going to go to the next place and I'm going to share Christ with people and they're going to come to know Christ because I believe it. Because the gospel is still the power of salvation and it's not going to stop. That's just the way it works. And one day my Lord is coming back for me. And when he does come back for me, I am not going to approach a stranger with all kinds of stuff I need to leave behind. I have a hundred-year-old piano that sits in my house right now. It was made in Chicago. That thing, the best thing that's going to happen to that thing is a fire. Now I'm going to set my house on fire. That's not prophecy. The point is, when the Lord comes back, I'm not going to try to take my piano with me. There's not a guitar. The only thing I want to go with me is my family. It's you guys. Three that bear my surname in my own household and you. Because I guarantee you, on the way up, nothing else is going to matter. I'm not even going to go, dang it, the sale started tomorrow. I could have actually been raptured in a cooler pair of jeans. Not a chance. I'm sure the white robe that I get in heaven will be much cooler. And it won't even fade or stain. How cool is that? As we go to prayer, beloved... Can we actually make everything about two things? Jesus first and people second. And then let everything else work its way out. Isn't that really the truth of this? You want to be validated? Get your validation at the cross. That's where everything is validated. And then invest in people. Hey, so people get get wonky on you? Yeah, don't let that stop you. Keep going. Because you never know. Even the people who have the craziest moments turn around and bear great fruit later. I've had people that just go, that just seem like that person's just off the Richter and they've left the reservation. And then years later, they'll, they'll like do something really cool. They'll write a book and people love it. And then the end of it, I just want to thank Pastor Tony. And you're like, are you kidding me? And the crazy part about it is you just never know. That's the point. As we pray, beloved, and then prepare to pray in song, let's just let it simplify to what God intended. Will you pray with me? Jesus, first, I want to thank you for dying on the cross for me. I want to thank you for what you've done here in this time. And I want to thank you, Lord, that in the end of it all, I can hear the hurt heart of Paul. And ministry does hurt. It hurts when you want to love on people that really turn around and, and just question your motivation or, or your methodologies or whatever it is. And, and, and thank you, Lord, that when we get it from you and we compare it to your scripture and we put people first, there will always be people that will, be at the, that, that will need it more than others and all of that. And Lord, we just want to follow you to love on people and let you bear forth the ministry and let the fruit be born as you would bear fruit, but I, as you would cause us to. And Jesus, you told us that. 
You told us that you would come, that we would bear fruit, and that our fruit would remain. It would transcend, and I thank you for that. So, Lord, even in this room right now, Lord, reframe our perspective. Lord, that we would put people first and that there wouldn't be this, this sense of entitlement that comes from this sort of this prosperity doctrine that, that, makes, that focuses on the world and what the world has to give us versus what you have to offer. And, and then we start to look at things as if somehow you're only really a means to give us what the world really has to offer. And that seems like such a wonky, messed up way of looking at things. And Lord, if we've been caught up in that at all, forgive us. And now, Lord, as we turn our hearts to, to praising you and to, to praying in song, Lord, hear our hearts. We hunger for your return, and we thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do tonight, even in that. But, Lord, wash over us right now by your Spirit. Don't allow us, Lord, to be, distra- be distracted by the cares and the worries of this world, the cares to want and the worries of the things we're worried, that we would be distracted by because we just... We're fearful and, and we're in essence saying, God, I don't know how you could do anything in this matter. It's so big. Put yourself properly over it and let us see that, how much bigger you are than the thing so that we could praise you as you deserve to be praised. And thank you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for raising from the dead on the third day, just like you promised. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us that opportunity to say yes. Tonight we say yes, we say yes to you. Declaring you as our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, for all the validation we could possibly want from human beings, if we get our validation from you, we can bear forth the fruit that will actually validate the ministry versus trying to get validated by the people and then in the essence of it all bearing forth no real great fruit. May we find all of our importance at the cross where you truly proved you would rather die than live without us. And thank you for that. So Jesus, tonight, even in our singing, be our Lord and Savior. We pray in your name. Amen.